We are called indeed to be a people who give thanks to God, for in our weaknesses, he strengthens us. I, uh, I hear that uh, on the other side of the camera this morning, uh, Johnny and Jonica are watching uh, from Mexico, um, and Johnny has been uh, released from the hospital, and uh, we praise God, Johnny, that the Lord is working in your life, and we pray that he will continue to strengthen you. We, uh, we are a people who are in dependence on the Lord uh, for him to change the condition of our hearts. And I don't know this morning if you feel like you're in a place in your life where you need, whether desperately or mildly, you need the Lord to change the condition of your heart. This morning... We will look at the difference faith brings. I have to confess to you a little um, fun thing I enjoy doing when I am totally bored and I have nothing else I can do uh, is uh, to watch shows that uh, deal with home restoration. (laughs) Typically, I only get to do that if I'm stuck like in a hospital room. And literally, I, there's not much I can do. Um, I like to watch home restoration shows. And uh, they often start with pictures of a fixer-upper. And uh, then along the show, they take segments and sort of tell the story of how that fixer-upper is being changed and transformed. And how it becomes an amazing place that you really want to live in. And the show ends with a before and after picture to remind you if you have forgotten in the short 30 minutes of how the, the house used to look like before it got to this new condition. Such pictures are of before and after are meant to remind us of the significant difference that has taken place. In our text today, the text that we will be looking at this morning, Paul wants to show us a picture of the before and after of the coming of faith. The before and after of the coming of faith. The coming of faith should bring about significant differences for us. And the question is, I wonder if we are aware of those differences And even if we are, sometimes in the slow progression of our sanctification, of our slow changing from one degree of glory to another, we sometimes forget where the Lord has taken us from. And even if you are a believer, it is a wonderful reminder to be given a before faith came and after faith came picture. I wonder if you are clear and aware and fresh in your mind of what those differences are that, fra- that faith brings to us, to every one of us. Does faith make a difference in you? Has faith made a difference in you? And if so, what is it? I'm sure if we had several hours of just going around this room and sharing one difference faith has made in you, we would be greatly edified by hearing specific aspects 
specific nuances, applications of what faith, what difference faith has made in your life. Our text today gives us a basis for us to be refreshed by God's word, to understand what difference faith brings and has brought. Listen to Galatians chapter 3. Uh, we'll be reading from verse 23 to verse 29. Galatians chapter 3, verse 23 to verse 29. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many, as, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you bow in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of the word and the hearing. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you are so gracious towards us. This morning as we stand before your word, we ask that you would fill us with the power of your spirit. Fill me with your spirit so I can proclaim your word with clarity and, and conviction and fill our hearts with the ability to hear process and to find the, the application that you want for this text to have on every one of our lives. We pray this, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, for his glory and honor. Amen. Consider the difference faith brings. In our text, I wonder if you noticed the before and after moments that Paul structures this entire collection of verses on. The before faith came and after faith came. So that we would be clear on the significance that this faith has for us. If you like taking notes, the, the sermon this morning will have two major points. Our condition before faith came. Or the before picture. And second, our condition after faith came, the after picture. Let's look at each, each of these and see what difference faith brings. Our condition before faith came. In two words, Paul says, under the law. Under the law. We'll say, well, what, what does that mean? What exactly, how exactly are we under the law? Notice Paul gives two images. When he thinks of our condition under the law, there's two images that Paul gives for us. Look at verses 23 and 24. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, 
imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Do you see the two pictures that Paul gives here? Held captive or imprisoned under the law? That's the first picture. And the second picture is under guardianship. Under a guardian. Now, I, we're going to expound these pictures in a second, but I need to give a caution. These are not the only images that we see in Scripture about the law of God. These two pictures tend to be uh, negative pictures, and they have an incredibly powerful use, even though they have a negative tone. There's other positive pictures about the law of God in the Bible. But here, in the book of Galatians, where Paul is addressing Jewish Christians who are going back to the law as a means to make them right with God, Paul brings these two pictures these negative pictures of the law. So I, I don't want you to live with the impression that this is all the picture, all the pictures that we have in the Bible about the law of God. This is specific for those who are tempted to believe that the mere obedience of God's law, or, or thinking another way, the mere fact that you think you have not broken God's law and you're fine with God, these two pictures are supposed to break that impression. So let's look at the two pictures. The law of God, the first one as imprisonment. The, the, the verbs that are describing this picture, held captive and imprisoned, are very intriguing. How does the law of God keep people captive or imprisoned? I mean, we understand how sin imprisons us. We understand how sin enslaves us keeps us in bondage because it corrupts us. Uh, but, but the law doesn't corrupt us. So how does the law of God hold us captive and imprisoned? In what sense? The law of God is described as a prison in the following sense. In the sense that you can't Escape from it on your own. You can't escape from it. Even if you want to. Let me give you an illustration. If you're in your house or your apartment and you want to get out, Christmas shopping or meeting with friends or coming to church, all you have to do is decide to get up and walk out. If you want to leave from this building, even now in the service, if I say something that you don't like and it just steps on your toes or whatever, and you just need to leave, you can just stand up and walk out. But if you are in prison, not as someone who visits those who are in prison, but actually are behind the bars. If you were in prison, you couldn't just decide to stand up and walk out. I mean, you could decide to stand, but you'd soon find out. You can't walk out. You can't escape. In a similar way, the law of God holds us captive. 
we cannot escape its demands on us. Even if we wanted to. Nor could we escape its punishment. Even if we tried to. Now people today think that the law of God doesn't apply to them. That the warnings of God's law, they can ignore. Just stand up and walk away from God's law. Pretend like they're not there. Live life as if they have all the freedom apart from the law of God. Friends, that self-impression goes on for many people in their lives. And for many, for their entire lives. Until they get before the judgment seat of God. And there, everyone will find out that the law of God could not be escaped. Its demands of us could not be put aside. And its punishment of our law-breaking could never be overcome on our own. Some people think they can live life as in an amusement park. Choosing to get on this ride and then move on to the next ride or take a break to get some concessions and some food. Get back on the ride. Just choose how you live your life between the rides of life. But God tells us that before the coming faith, we all are under his law. And under it, we are not like living in an amusement park, though we try. We're more like living in a prison, unable to escape the demands of God's law and unable to break free from the punishment that his law brings on us. Friends, notice an important detail about this picture, however. This grim, cold shower kind of picture Imprisoned under the law, held captive by the law, has a timestamp on it. It was not designed to be forever. Notice, notice what it says. Notice the until. Imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And this is a good news that the Bible tells us. The imprisonment that the law holds us under was not intended by God to be forever. It was intended to come to a stop when the coming faith would be revealed. This was God's design. Now some may be wondering, especially if you've been with us in, in the book of Galatians um, so far, wait, didn't Paul tell us that even in the Old Testament, God was working by faith? I mean, as early as the book of Genesis with Abraham, God was working by faith Yes, he has been working by faith. After all, in chapter 3, Paul also gave us several verses from the Old Testament to show us that even in the Old Testament, God was working by faith. So what faith is being revealed here that was somehow missing earlier under the law? In verse 24, the coming of faith is replaced by another phrase, by the coming of Christ. This means that the coming faith that is being referred to here is the faith that has as its content, as its object, Jesus Christ. So even though God required faith as early as the book of Genesis, faith in Jesus Christ became explicit only when Christ became man. 
It was implicit and, over, and, and foreshadowed in the Old Testament in so many ways. Clues along the trail, as we have seen, that God has put uh, throughout the Old Testament. But it became revealed and explicit with the coming of Jesus Christ. So now, as believers, when we think about what difference faith brings, we're not just talking about what difference faith in God in general brings in. We're not talking about faith in a higher power. We're not talking about faith in just a general God out there. We're talking specifically about faith in Jesus Christ. What difference does that faith make? Well, Paul says the imprisonment that the law holds us under is broken with the coming of faith, with the coming of Christ. But there's a second uh, a second picture, actually before we go to the second picture, you might say, how and why does God, does Jesus break the imprisonment uh, that we're under by his coming? Well, it's because he not only fulfilled God's law entirely, but because he paid the punishment that our law-breaking of God's law deserves. That's why the imprisonment is now coming to an end for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. But let's look at the second picture. The second image, our guardian. The law is not only an imprisonment holding us captive, but it's our guardian. Look at verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Or as other translations say, so the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. We have the notion of guardians today, but the, the meaning of guardianship today is very different than the way Paul was using this concept in, in the book of Galatians. Uh, today, when you think about a guardian, uh, you think of a defender, a protector, or a keeper, someone who looks after and is legally responsible for someone else who is unable to manage their own uh, affairs. A guardian in ancient times was different than the way we are thinking of guardians today. In ancient cultures, guardians were a bit different in the sense that they were set by parents to ensure that their children followed closely the daily training set by the parents. Such guardians were often the ones who enforced the discipline and the rigor in the training schedule of children. Now, some Bible translations use the word tutor or a schoolmaster. We should not assume uh, the sense of tutor in the sense like a teacher. Uh, that's, that's, not, that's not the tone here. If anything, the tone is that of a disciplinarian. The disciplinarian. As one Bible teacher put it, the guardian was often harsh to the point of cruelty and is usually depicted in ancient drawings with a rod or cane in his hand. That's the picture of, of our guardian that the law of God has been for us. Paul says that the Old Testament law was our guardian, and the goal of the law was to keep people in God's training program, revealing to them how they were expected to live in God's universe and reinforcing those expectations. And how often did they, those reinforcements have to be made? To the point of exasperation. To the point where God actually exiled his people out of the land. He was done with them in the land. Discipline was needed so severely because they kept breaking God's law. 
But there's an important implication about the picture of guardianship. And it's very important, a very important distinction from the way we use guardians today and for the way ancient cultures use guardians. Today, if someone is a guardian of someone else, especially you can be a, a legal guardian for, uh, for an older person who is no longer able to, to manage their affairs, you can be a guardian forever, for a long time. But in ancient cultures, the guardian was only, was implied to be only for a limited time. The temporal limit set for the law as a guardian is what is implied here in verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until, until Christ came. Oh friends, the law of God was never intended to be used as a guardian forever for us. It was designed to prepare us for the coming of Jesus. And you say, how? Well, look again at verse 24. In order that we might be justified by faith. In other words, the law as our guardian could never get us right with God. It could only prepare us for recognizing our need for Jesus to make us right with God so that our justification would be not by our own works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Parents, when you teach your children God's law, and I hope you do, do you teach it in such a way that it makes your children think that they can live up to it adequately? Just try harder next time. If so, they will seek to obey God's law apart from feeling their need to turn to Jesus. Do you teach your children God's law in such a way that it points them to their inability to live it out entirely, consistently, all the time? If so, it points to the need, to, to the one who actually has lived it all the time, consistently, perfectly, and in whom and through whom our breaking of God's law is paid for in full. If you don't teach your children God's law, they will feel no need for Jesus because they will feel they have not broken God's commandments. It's important for us to teach our children God's laws. It's important for us to meditate regularly on God's laws. When you are bored with Jesus or feel like you need something else than Jesus to, to make you satisfied in your life, just read God's law and how often you break it. And then remember, Jesus is the one who has paid for every punishment, for every breaking of, your, of God's law in your life. It brings gratitude. It brings joy. It brings thanksgiving. It brings a deeper appreciation for what Jesus has done. If you don't know God's law and don't realize that you have broken his laws, you will think you have no reason to turn to Jesus. If you're not a believer, you may wonder, why do I need to turn to Jesus? Well, consider God's laws and how you have broken them. And consider the punishment that we deserve for breaking God's law. And consider that those punishments are all paid for in Jesus if you place your trust in him. Oh, friends, the harness of the law Harshness of the law is a good thing for us because it points 
to our need for Christ. Oh, friend, even though these two images are negative in nature, God designed this role for the law. God designed the law to function as a prisoner or as a guardian. God nevertheless designed the law to function for this purpose for a limited time, not forever. If only we would turn to Christ by faith. I wonder if hearing these two images of God's law deepens your desire for Christ. I love how one Bible interpreter, John Sott, put it beautifully. God gave the law in his grace in order to make the promise more desirable. Now, this is our condition before faith came. Under the law of God. Imprisoned under guardian. But let's look at what happened and what happens when faith comes. What is our condition after faith has come? We see the answer in verses 25 through 29. Notice the change that is introduced in verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. What a beautiful change of condition. The coming of faith has put an end to our standing under ancient guardians, disciplinarians, being held captive. But what is our new condition now? The answer that is given in verses 25 through 29 is repeated four times. Four times, the same expression. And it's this, in Christ. Our condition after faith has come is that now those who put their faith in Christ are in Christ. It's not just about, oh, I just put my faith in this candidate, in this program. No, no, no. It's when we put our faith in Jesus, our new condition is that we are in Christ. Notice in verses 25 through 29, four times in every one of the verses, Starting with verse 26, four times the phrase either in Christ or Christ or Christ's, belonging to Christ. In verse 26, for in Christ. In verse 27, being baptized into Christ. Verse 28, you all are one in Christ. Verse 29, if you are Christ's. Do you see it? Which tells us, this means, this tells us that when faith comes, the difference it brings is that it unites us to Christ. This is what the difference faith brings. It unites us to Christ. And if under the law, in the before picture, the effects of being under the law were imprisoned and guard under guardian, when we are in the new condition in Christ, what are the effects of that? Four effects. Four effects. If you are now in Christ, there's four effects. The first one, we become sons of God through faith. 
we become sons of God through faith. Look at verse 26. When we are united to Christ, we become sons of God through faith. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Friends, let me say it again. When we are united to Christ by faith, God becomes our Father. This happens when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. We become united to Jesus and therefore God becomes our Father. We become sons and daughters of the Heavenly Father. Oh friends, God is Father only to those who are united to Christ by faith. So let me ask you this morning, can you say that God is your Heavenly Father? Can you say that I am a son or a daughter of my heavenly father? If you're not sure of this reality, this text tells us how we can be assured that God becomes our father. It is only if you are in Christ. Only if you are in Christ. You say, how, how do I get in Christ? By faith. Putting your trust in Jesus makes you to be in Christ. That's why faith is not just a mental assent that something is real. Faith in Christ puts you in Christ. And when you are in Christ, God, the Heavenly Father, becomes your Father as well. What a difference faith brings to put us in Christ. And because of that, the effect of that is we become sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. Effect number two, when we are in Christ, we are publicly identified with Christ. When we are in Christ, we are publicly identified with Christ. Where, where do we see that? In verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now what's the meaning of this illustration of putting on Christ? I mean imagine a, a garment or a, a toga, a, a dress or a long clothing that you just put on you. If you were to put a jersey on you with some name on the back that is burnt orange and starts with U and ends with T. What are you putting on you? What, what do I, you identify with? Come on, students, help me out. You identify with UT, right? Everyone knows that you're a t UT guy or gal. Don't go to NM with that shirt on. When you're baptized into Christ, when, 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 we, when we experience the immersion into water, being buried with Jesus and being raised with him. It's a visible symbol, not only of our death with Christ, not only of our resurrection with Christ, it is also an image of putting on Jesus, of being clothed with Jesus, of putting on the jersey on which it's written, I belong to Jesus. So the picture here is when we are in Christ, 
we are publicly identified with Christ. Everyone sees now that you belong to Jesus. That's what happens in baptism. Faith in Christ, my friends, must become visible. We must make a public declaration to the world, we now belong to Jesus. And the visible declaration that we have put our faith in Jesus is baptism. Baptism does not unite us to Christ. I want to be very clear about that. Baptism does not unite us to Christ. But baptism is the visible public declaration that through faith we have been united to Jesus. Because baptism is a visible manifestation of the faith of our hearts, of our trusting in Christ, it is as if we are putting on Jesus as a garment. And friends, if faith is what secures our union with Christ, baptism is what makes our union with Christ visible. Faith secures our union with Christ. Baptism makes it visible. So I wonder, my friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, do you consider faith in Jesus to be only a private affair? Our faith in Christ is personal, but it's never private. Our faith in Christ is personal. It's supposed to be personal, but it's not supposed to be private. You cannot say that you are a secret follower of Jesus, an undercover follower of Jesus. Our faith in Jesus is supposed to be publicly declared as public as the clothes you put on you. Are you embarrassed to make a public confession of Jesus to others? Some of us may be treating Christ in this picture of being clothed with Christ like a, the clothing that's out of fashion. Uh, we no longer put it on. We just leave it in the closet. Or if we do, uh, we just wear it at home where nobody sees us because we're embarrassed about putting on Jesus. Friends, our faith unites us to Christ. And the effect of that is that we're now publicly identified with Christ. No more just keep Jesus to yourself kind of life. Effect number three, if we are in Christ if this is a new condition that faith brings us in Christ, what's the effect? A third effect. When we, are, when we are united to Christ, we are united to other believers. When we're united to Christ, we're united to other believers. If our faith is only for ourselves, we not only miss the public nature that we see, here, we not only see, miss the, the public demand of that faith, but the third effect, we miss the horizontal effect of also being united to other believers. You see, if you, if you go for a faith that's just private, you not only miss the connection with God, quite frankly, but you also miss the connection with others as well. 
Verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Well, friends, if you, are, if you were a Jew hearing these words in the first century, uh, you're just about to, like, jump off your seat and get out of the synagogue or get out of the sermon or of this message. What do you mean there's now no more Jew and Greek? Since ever, ever since I was born as a Jew, I was told there's a big difference in being a Jew. And here's what makes you a Jew. You have received the law of God. We know God. We know how to walk with God. The rest of the world are pagans. They're dogs and, and pigs like Pastor Taylor told us last week from the passage on the Sermon on the Mount. Like you're a Jew. You're special. And here's the Apostle Paul says, there's now no more Jew or Greek. That distinction that the very law of God was given for to make. This was not just a, a self-initiated uh, pride. No, the law of God was given to make a distinction between Jews and Gentiles. But God's design was for that law to come to an end in that distinction. And now to bring Jews and Gentiles together by saying no more law. Now, there's no more Jew and Gentile. That distinction of ethnicities is put aside. Oh, and just in case you thought it's just about race and ethnicity, it's not just about that. It's also about social status. Slaves and free. Men and women, gender. There's now no more special privilege that is given only to some ethnic groups or to some social status people, or to some particular gender. All of these, when it comes to our access to God, that access brings everybody on the same plane by faith. When we are in Jesus, there is no more distinction. But notice that this distinction, my friends, is not only for our access to God, it's for our access to each other. It's not simply that now anybody can get saved. There's now no more distinction because now all of us are supposed to be one. And the reasons that used to be a barrier between us, whether those would be ethnic racial differences, whether those would be social status differences, and especially in ancient cultures, social status differences and class differences were huge. All of that is put aside. And even the distinction of gender. This doesn't mean that ethnic, ethnicity or social status or gender differences, uh, should, we should be colorblind to them. This is not a call to colorblindness. This is simply a call to realize that our union with Christ and with one another should have no more obstacles of this kind. I wonder what are the kind of obstacles that you and I are tempted to put when it comes to our union and our unity with one another in Christ. Let's be honest. When we hold on to our preferences for who we fellowship with, or the reality that 
It's easier to live in fellowship with people who are like us, who share the same norms, the same cultural clues and values like we do. It's easier to be one with those. But when we are in Christ, that union with Christ shows up in our willingness to be one with other believers regardless of ethnicity, social status, gender, or whatever else distinguishes us. How about age? When churches seek to grow based on certain demographics, what does that say about the oneness we are supposed to have in Christ across the age spectrum? The reason why we practice church membership is to encourage encourage one another, each of us, to commit to one another, even if all we have in common is Christ. We want to say that should be enough to bind us together, to make us one. Our union with him is sufficient for our unity with one another, regardless of what differentiates us. What are the differences that you tend to put as conditions for unity with other believers? When you are in Christ, you're one with other believers as well. And the last effect, when we are in Christ, we're part of Abraham's promised offspring. When you are in Christ, when we are in Christ, we're part of Abraham's promised offspring. Now, I have to confess to you, I was puzzled in in working through this passage because it starts with the first benefit is your sons of God and it ends with your Abraham's offspring. It, it may feel to us like an inverted argument, like the culmination was at first and it just everything else is down the, you know, down the hill. And yet, in Paul's argument, this is the top of the argument. This is the top of the mountain. Now, we as Gentiles don't get this. But for Paul's argument, writing to Jewish Christians, this is the culmination. Because... There's only one way you could be an offspring of Abraham if you were a physical descendant like Ariel and Talia are. Part of the Jewish nation. Now, I know, I don't want to embarrass you, but that's what it is. Like, none of us, under the old system of thinking, if you will, none of us could be granted the status, the condition Uh, of being the offspring of Abraham. So for Paul to heighten his argument and to to bring this final claim here at the end, it's like dropping the bomb. You mean all of us in Christ are offspring of Abraham, even though we have no physical lineage, descent? Yes. That's Paul's argument. How, Paul, how could you make that claim? And here's, here's his logic. Earlier in verse 16, he said, God made promises to Abraham to bless his offspring. And Paul made it very clear, the offspring of Abraham, verse 16, earlier in our text, is not referring to the nation of Israel. It's referring to Christ. Christ is a promised offspring of Abraham. And when we are in Christ through faith, Guess what? You also are Abraham's offspring. Wow. No more thinking physical lineage, physical descent. 
we receive the same promises, the same incredible grace that God has given to Abraham in the book of Genesis. In Christ, we are Abraham's offspring. And therefore, and therefore, heirs according to promise. Following the lineage of Isaac. Being given to Abraham by promise. Following the lineage ultimately of Jesus Christ. Who came to us, born of a virgin. Enabled by God's spirit to obey the law of God fully so that those who put their trust in Jesus now becomes, become heirs of the inheritance promised to Abraham. Oh, friends, this text started with the benefit of becoming sons of God through faith and now closes with the benefit of becoming Abraham's offspring by faith and thus an heir. God is fulfilling his promises to Abraham through Jesus so that all of us receive the same blessing. We have looked at the four effects of what it means to be in Christ. The effects of being in Christ is that we become sons of God. We become publicly identified with Christ. We become united with other believers and we become part of Abraham's promised offspring. I wonder which of these effects, I wonder which of these realities is the most difficult one for you to chew on, to remember, and to live in light of. I wonder which of these effects is new for you today or freshly deepened for us this morning. What difference does faith bring us? Remember the before and after picture. Before, under the law, imprisoned under guardian after in Christ sons of God publicly united and identified with Christ united with other believers and united into the offspring of Abraham becoming part of his promised offspring and inheritance oh my friend are you aware that faith in Christ brings you into Christ? Does faith make a difference for you? Has it made a difference in your life? Or are your life more like that fixer-upper still that hasn't been touched, hasn't felt the effects of the change that God brings to us through His Son, Jesus Christ? I pray that faith, as we enter this Christmas season, faith in Jesus would make a lasting difference for each and every one of us. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for Jesus. And thank you that you have opened the door for us, imprisoned, captive, under guardians, unable to escape, you have opened the door for us to be in Jesus. And that door is open for us by faith. Cause our hearts to walk today through that door of faith into the reality of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.